This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you all the way from Colorado here in the United States. And we are reaching the end of the summer here, and we've all had some some great rides this summer. I think we're, we're, we're looking forward to fall, but we're all reminiscing on these wonderful times we had on the bike this year. And one of the rides that really left an impression on me was one that I didn't even do. Uh, it was it was somebody else's ride, uh, but it, it, it's really quite a special ride. And, and that ride was uh, done by Eric Cedeno, known as the Bicycle Nomad, and he retraced the route of the Buffalo Soldiers 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps from Missoula, Montana to St. Louis, Missouri. That's 1,900 miles. And he did it for a reason. It wasn't just to go see if he could ride 1,900 miles. Eric already knew he could do that, but he had a special purpose in mind for this trip. So to hear a little bit about that, as well as some of the gear he used on that trip, I've got on the line Eric Cedeno, the bicycle nomad, joining me from California. Eric, how's it going? Hey, Dan. Thank you again for this opportunity to share their history, um, which is, is so exciting, it's so epic, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Eric. And let's jump right in. First of all, tell me about the trip, what it was, and why you did it. Well, I'll start with why I did it. I, about 12, 13 years ago, I decided I wanted to travel the country by bicycle. But I love history. And I wanted to know who were the first people that traveled by bicycle and why they did it and where they went and came across a lot of expedition in 1890s, uh, late 1890s. And in 1896, I came across the Bicycle Corps. And I was so excited because for the first time that I've seen documented black soldiers or black men traveling by bicycle. And first time looking at someone that looks like me. And I love traveling by bicycle, so I decided I need to shine a light to that project to inspire other people um, and, to, and to share their history uh, because it was epic. And, and I, I want to make it clear, too, that, you know, the focus of your ride wasn't necessarily on the military aspects. It was more to honor the people who, who did this incredible ride and made these sacrifices uh, for, for a common cause. And, 
and and just the 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 stories of these men got lost throughout the ages, and you learned so much about them. Tell me a little bit about some of those characters that you learned about. Well, I learned. Well, first, I fell in love that they did 1,900 miles in a single speed bicycle, and that fascinated me. Um, I'm not a single speed kind of bike uh, rider, but I just knew the route that they took had to be grueling doing it on a, on a single speed. Then I came across several characters on the story of the Bicycle Corps. There's a lot of gaps, and that is also the reason why I decided to do it. I want to learn more, and I want to fill the gaps that were not documented as well, right? So I know the white lieutenant, I know the doctor, and I, I know the journalist. But there was 20 black soldiers and right now, we don't know, well, we know every single name of them, but we can't put a face with a name. And that kind of hurt me, right? Because this was American history. And yet, I don't know the face of several of the writers. Right? I knew a few of them. And up to this point, I have worked with several historians. And now we're able to put about seven to eight uh, of the writers with face and a name. But there's 12, 13 that I have no idea what they look like or who they are. Um, but I was fascinated with Private John Finley. He was the mechanic of the expedition. And without him, uh, the more I dig in, without him, it would be almost impossible to do this uh, expedition. And I just think that they didn't get the dignity and the credit that they deserved when they were alive. And especially him. There was times when he wasn't able to sleep at night because the lieutenant was so obsessed with doing 50 miles a day. Right? And it was up to one mechanic to do, well, there was 20 black soldiers and three, off, and, and three white. Um, there was Lieutenant Moss, the surgeon, and a journalist. So there's 23 bikes that he had to take care of at night. While people were sleeping, he would be working to make sure that the next day they would continue. I mean, there was only two or three complete days off. 1,900 miles, single speed. So you could only imagine what the, the pressure that he felt. So for me, I'm like, I, I love that guy. I, I, uh, but there's also... Um, Elwood Foreman and Elwood uh, for me uh, I love that guy because he had a lot of sense of humor uh, throughout the trip uh, on a grueling trip um, you know one of one of the quotes and, and, and that's kind of the sad part of this history is that I haven't been able to get a lot of quotes or a lot of the things that they went through in their head, right? But there's a few quotes that Lieutenant Moss were able to uh, document. And Elwood Foreman, for me, was very funny. And he had a quote that says, and he was, they were sitting in a campsite, and he says, man, there wasn't a bicycle 100 years ago. Oh, I wish I lived 100 years ago. And to me, that was uh, pretty funny just because that, that tells you how grueling this, this expedition was, you know. Yeah. But, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think anybody who's done big miles on a bike feels that way every once in a while. <laughs> um, Eric, a lot of our listeners are in the UK. And so just to give some perspective, 1900 miles, the ride started in Missoula, Montana, and it ended in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, you did the 50 miles a day that they did, correct? Yeah, I did 50 miles. Sometimes they went over 50 miles, 63 miles. The most they did was 73 miles. And I got up to that as well. Yeah. What was the terrain like now? I mean, back then it was it was more probably more rural and, and a lot of dirt roads. But now it was more mixed. Tell me a little bit about the terrain. Well, yes. Yeah. So one of the reasons they selected. So let me go back. In 1896, there was a total of three expedition, Dan. Uh, the first one was from Port Missoula up to Lake McDonald. It's about 123 miles. Um, that was the first expedition. The second one was from Fort Missoula, Montana to Yellowstone and back. Roughly 800 miles. You have to know that back in 1890s, there was no roads like we have today. They were, they were all dirt road. So in 1897 they decided to go a little further and to, and to see different terrain and different climates. So that's why they went from Montana to St. Louis. Because you had to go over the Rockies, the Continental Divide, and down into the plains and into the Sand Hills of Nebraska. So um, very grueling uh, route. Now, my route... I wanted to go as historically as possible to their route, to the original route. As you know, in 1897, there was a lot of public land compared to now that there's a lot of private land. So there were several times that I had to go uh, around a ranch or something like that, right? But uh, I say that my route was very, very close to the original route, Um I think I was about 75% of my, of my route was gravel and, um, and the rest was paved. That's pretty impressive, actually, in the modern day. I mean, that, that's a pretty impressive route for the United States in particular, which is very pavement heavy. So that, that's a really incredible thing that you pulled off. Oh, yes. It, 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 it's amazing. But you have to understand that one of the reasons they went from Missoula, Montana to St. Louis, Missouri... Um, again, was to cover the terrain, the climate, but also because there was a railroad track that they were pretty much hugging most of the time because they only carry about two days worth of food. And every hundred miles, the army will resupply with food and, and, and supplies, right? So they had to meet those hundred miles to get more food and stuff like that. So Nowadays, there's still a lot of gravel that goes through those um, railroad tracks. So, um, yeah, it, it was amazing. And, 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 and I see how grueling it was because the terrain changes, you know, from Montana to Wyoming. Um, I spent one day in South Dakota and then you drop into Nebraska and the terrain, the gravel is just different in different states. It's just pretty, pretty amazing. We're going to talk a little bit more after the break about your gear setup in particular. But one thing I want you, I want to note is that uh, the bikes that these guys were riding were heavy and they were single speeds and they were not, 
you know, we think of bikes today as, as ultra capable, you know, machines, but you know, this was a little bit more primitive back then. And, and one thing that I want to say that I, th I found impressive when I came out to visit you in California, uh, to do our video together, which by the way, if uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the liner notes here. So y'all can see what, uh, what Eric, uh, was doing in the lead up to, to this ride. But one thing that I found particularly impressive, Eric was you know, you tell me, you, you keep telling me you're not a gear guy, but one thing you noticed was uh, in some of the photos, the way you could tell which ride they were on was whether or not their bike had a, a chain guard on it. Uh, and I was impressed. I was impressed that you noticed that. It was really, really great. So you do have a little bit of a nose for the gear. Yeah, just a little bit uh, more. Again, that comes from uh, me loving history. And I came across several photos and I just couldn't figure out which photo was Again, there's a lot of gaps in this story, so I had to figure out there's three expedition, which photo goes with what expedition, and then who are the guys in what expedition and how I'm able to. So right now, I was able, working with historians, I was able to get, there was eight riders on the 1896 Yellowstone expedition, and we were able to put a face with a name for every single one. And that's how we started. And now we're like, okay, in 1897, which one did the 1896 and 1897, right? So I'm able to, and there was a couple of them that, that did the 1896 and the 1897 expedition. That's how we're able to put a face with a name. And, and then, you know, geeking out in history and trying to figure out like, okay, this photo, was it in Yellowstone? Like, did they go through Yellowstone on the 1897 expedition? And and then that's when we able to see like, oh, there's not a chain guard on this picture, but there's a chain guard on that picture. And then we realize, um, and then we realized in 1896, they had wooden rims, like the wheels were wooden, but in 1897, they were steel. So yeah, it's pretty interesting how um, you could just go on and on just looking at pictures and and because they had a journalist, we have some really cool pictures. And here we are complaining about carbon fiber wheels breaking. Can you imagine on some wooden rims? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, we're going to, in a minute here, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, first, I want to I want to talk a little bit about what you learned about what types of bikes they were riding, because I know you have some information specifically about what bikes they were on. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about what you were riding during your trip and what gear you brought with you, what worked, what didn't uh, on such a pretty epic journey. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello, I've just popped on to say if you're enjoying this Ruler Tech podcast, you can also check out the Ruler Conversations podcast with me, Ian Parkinson, every other week. More importantly, go and subscribe to the magazine for the best in independent cycling journalism, columns from Orla Shenoy and Ned Bolting, brilliant photographs and innovative design. Go to ruler.cc to take out a subscription now. Back to Dan. We are back with the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am still your host, Dan Cavallari. I am still in Colorado, and I am still chatting with Eric Cedeno, the bicycle nomad who did uh, an incredible trip just a, just boy just about a month ago. You've uh, you've wrapped it up pretty pretty recently, uh, following the the trail of the uh, Buffalo Soldiers Bicycle Corps, Twenty Fifth Infantry. You traced their route from Missoula, Montana, to St. Louis, Missouri. That's nineteen hundred miles. Uh, and Eric, in the course of your research, you researched what they were riding 
back then, and they, it's not much what like what we ride today. Can you tell me a little bit about the bikes they were on when they did this trip? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, there was three expedition, and they were riding a Spalding, um, a Spalding special. So, and they evolved because again in 1896 the wheels were wooden, and they realized that with the rain. Um, they didn't hold up very well. So they changed it to steel. And also, um, there was a lot of mud on the gravel that they were riding, on the routes that they were riding. So they added the chain guard in 1897. But yeah, it was it's called the Spalding um, bike, which I haven't been able to find um, any of those original bikes yet. I don't know where. We looked everywhere. Um, but maybe not everywhere, but um, they were returned to Spalding Company after the 1897 expedition. So we haven't been able to. Um, there are a few 1897 uh, Spalding. There's one in, in actually UK that I've uh, talked to a guy, which I, I would love to, because it's very close to what they wrote. And it's the 1897 Spalding, but uh, and it looks amazing. I've seen pictures of it, but the guy wants a lot of money for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably rightfully so. Nice uh, collector's item. Um, and we're talking about bikes that were probably straight gauge steel, uh, pretty heavy. Uh, and these soldiers were carrying quite a bit with them. Do you know anything at all about what they were carrying with them on the ride? Yeah, so... Um, so food-wise, they carried uh, cans of beans, they had bacon, they had coffee, um, they carried uh, underwear, combs, and like an extra shirt. They didn't carry much. Uh, the bikes weighted down with gear was about 57 to 59 pounds. Uh, which was very surprising to me because I would have thought they would have been like 100 pounds uh, talking about. But yeah, they, they, they were about 57 to 59 pounds with gear. So that was pretty good. And they wore, I mean, it looks like they were wearing military uniforms. So probably not super breathable. Uh, probably had quite a bit of weight there. Correct. So they, um, it was an experiment. It was an experiment to see if the bicycle, if they could use the bicycle as a method of transportation, because at that time, um, all the military had was the horse uh, cavalry. But so they wanted to add, they knew that the bicycle would be cheaper than the horse and also more quiet uh, when going into battle. So it was an experiment. It wasn't just a, a bike ride like I mine was more of a, a historical research. And I took my time. And, and if I wanted to take a day off, I did. They were actually military servicemen, and they were an um, order to to complete uh, this expedition. But yeah, it was an experiment. So um, I, I learned a lot about the drills that they did. Um, they had to learn how to ride with how without holding the handlebar, so they could um, shoot at the same time. So they had several drills throughout the day while they were riding, you know. So, so it was a pretty comprehensive uh, exercise, not just a ride from point A to point B. To wrap up sort of their story, uh, one of the reasons I think you mentioned to me that you undertook this project was because these men didn't get the recognition they deserved and in some cases were actually 
not, almost punished uh, in a way for 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 what they did. Uh, and and can you tell me a little bit about how their stories ended, uh, the Bicycle Corp? Yes. Yeah, so there was a, a fourth expedition in 1898 that they wanted to do from Fort Missoula to San Francisco, but then uh, the Spanish War uh, broke out in Cuba, and the 25th Infantry, and including some of these riders, were sent to Cuba to fight the Spanish War, and. Um, after the war, they, they were sent to Brownsville, Texas. And not all of the guys were sent to Brownsville, Texas, but there's a few of the writers. Uh, and there was, a, there was an incident in Brownsville, Texas in 1906 where um, a, a bartender uh, was killed and a, a police officer was hurt. Anyways, it escalated all the way up to the, the White House. And at, at the time, was Theodore Roosevelt was the president. The oldest rider of the expedition was Mingo Sanders. Mingo Sanders was about 39 years old at the time of the expedition. And he in 1906, it was about three months to retiring. And to me, it was a botch investigation. The guys had nothing to do, but the residents of the town blamed the Buffalo soldiers uh, because there were black soldiers that lived in the town and they didn't want them to live there. So they made it very impossible for, for them to, to live there. And again, this incident happened. It escalated all the way up to the White House. And at the time, Theodore Roosevelt uh, got an investigation um, uh, data and, and he decided to uh, dishonorable discharge the whole platoon. Uh, 167 uh, soldiers were left without a pension, without a way to support their family. Some of them, you know, this was, you have to understand in the U.S., this was about 50 years or so after uh, slavery. So it was, um, there was a sense of pride for some of these guys who their moms and their dads were uh, most likely slaves. And for them to to um, to be servicemen was a uh, uh, it's a sense of pride and for them to get kicked out of the army for something that they had nothing to do uh, really hurt me. And, um, and that's why I decided that this was about telling the truth and giving the dignity uh, of this. Um, because, again, I was interested only about the bicycles and then I just went into the history of what happened to these guys afterwards. And... And finding out, uh, Dan, um, that some of these guys were buried without a tombstone. And, um, and you have to understand that I love traveling by bicycle. It's, it's a passion. It's who I identify myself. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a traveler by bicycle. So, um, and, and these guys are my heroes. They inspire me to travel the whole country by bicycle. Um, for me, it's about telling the next generation of bicycle nomads that look like me and to get for them to get inspired because in 1897, there were black men <laughs> traveling by bicycle. And to me, it's a sense of pride, you know? So, yeah, um, Again, there's a lot of gaps in the story that I'm trying to fill 
and giving them the dignity, uh, we found the mechanic, uh, Private John Finley, was buried without a tombstone. And about four months ago, working with some historians, we were able to uh, find where he was buried. And, um, and working with the VA, we were the, the Veterans Affair, uh, we were able to put um, a tombstone, um, brand new tombstone uh, on Private John Finley, which was the mechanic. And, and we're finding out several other ones. Uh, we have the next one that we're working on is Private John Wilson. Um, and, and there's a lot of research that we have to prove that that's the person who's buried there. But, um, but it, it, for me, it's more than just a bike ride. It's about making sure that I know and we all know who these guys were, 20 of them. And we were able to recognize them by face and name and also that they get the proper burial, you know, because uh, this is, again, U.S. history and and it should be celebrated because what they did, um, and like you mentioned, I'm not celebrating the military. I'm celebrating bicycle expedition in 1897 done in the U.S. And it wasn't, uh, not a lot of us know about it. So, Well, Eric, I think we proved when I was there in California that you and I could talk about this endlessly. <laughs> um but uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your gear choices for your ride, because I think a lot of folks uh, hear that 1,900-mile number, and, and it's pretty daunting. Um, and I think my tendency is to overpack for these things. So I'm curious, uh, give me a quick rundown of your bike was pretty different from what the Buffalo Soldiers were riding. Um, you were on a Niner uh, Steel RLT, Correct. Correct. Um, tell me about your bike setup and what bags you had on there, what you brought with you, what was the most important stuff for you? Well, see, I have traveled again for over 13 years all over the country by bicycle, every single state except Alaska. So for this one, I knew that I wanted to go a little lighter. So I didn't overpack, which I have done in several other ones. But this one, uh, <laughs> this one especially because of the... Um, because there was a lot of climbing. Uh, there was 55,000 feet in, of 1,900 miles between Missoula, Montana to San Luis. And, uh, and throughout, you would think like, oh, Nebraska is flat and you think Missouri is flat, but it's not. There's rolling hills. But prior to that, I had to go over the Continental Divide, which was very interesting because the time that I went over the Continental Divide, it was the time there was a lot of the this year the, the continental divide race so i saw a lot of the, the 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 cyclists going around me and stuff like that so it's pretty cool to see that but so because of that because of um the climb and i i decided to go light and i love steel i love traveling by steel uh on steel bikes and i've done it in every single expedition i've never gone on, on a carbon fiber um but maybe that's next. Uh, but I've always traveled on, on steel and with, I have a partnership with Niner and, and, and I think that, and I'm not saying this just because of my partnership, but it was just the perfect bike for this expedition. The geometry, the way it handled, um, and, 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 and the fork is carbon fiber. So it's a little lighter than anything that I have written in the past. 
So I, I, I truly love that bike. What were you using for bags to stow all your stuff in? You said Blackburn, correct? On, on, on bags, I, I had Blackburn bags. And the way I set them up, and a lot of people question that a lot, is I like my panniers in the front. So I don't have panniers in the back anymore. I used to in the past. And, and it always changed depending on the, the size of, uh, of the trip. But this is 1,900 miles and I knew I wanted to go light. And I knew that I could go about 8 to 10 pounds on each of my front bags, which is about the, 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 the weight limit that I like it. There's about 10 pounds in the front and each of the bags. Um, I had uh, a handlebar bag where I put my tent. I had a one-person tent, which was a, a big Agnes one-person tent, which they have a... Big Agnes has a bikepacking collection, and I really recommend it because it packs real small, and the and the poles are very tiny. So, um, so imagine that in my front bag I had my tent and sleeping bag and my poles all in that small handlebar bag, um, and then I had a, a a frame bag, but I didn't have the full frame bag this time. I just had a uh, a half frame bag. Like the top tube bag kind of thing where it, it, you have room for water bottles underneath. I have room for, and and and, and when we talk about bo- uh, how grueling this trip was, one of the most challenging things in this route is water, and which is the same thing that they encounter. Um, there's not enough water throughout the trip. Um, there's a, like Nebraska, it was hard to find water. Um, and their towns in 2022 are so far apart. Um, so I had three bottles of water, but if I have five, I, I, I probably would not have had enough, you know? So water was um, hard, but, but yeah, that's one of the reasons I went with, with um, the half bag. But again, I wanted to go really light and I was thinking of going with a saddle bag, but I decided not to because everything fit where I wanted to be. Interesting, um, when we're talking about weight and, and, and tech, specification i was about 57 to 59 pounds as well um, my bike weighted about 57 59 pounds which is the same uh, weight that the original expedition had as yeah well. yeah that's cool nice consistency there <laughs> yeah and it wasn't it, it was done kind of coincidence i i put everything that i needed and then we took it to a bike shop weighted the bike and it was you know 57 pounds sometimes a little more because because of food. I'm plant-based, so I had to carry a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about food in a second, but I just, I wanted to ask, why why do you prefer to have the weight in the front of your bike rather than in the rear? Or why do you prefer to have the bags, I guess I should say? Well, I love how it handles. It almost, it, it especially this route, because 75% of the route, close to 80% of the route, was gravel. And it, it like weighted my front wheel down. And, but I was able to still have full control of it. It was, it's just for this route, I, I just, I loved, if I have to do it again, I would do it again the way I set it up, which is the front panniers. I just loved how it's just low gravity. It, it holds, and, and then on, on the down low, on, when I'm descending, it's just, I'm going so fast. Um, I just, I, I just love it. Uh, but I also, 
love it because I'm able to keep minimum amount of weight on my bike. You know, if I start putting stuff in the back, in the front. In the past, also talking to people and doing research, I had a few spoken uh, spokes broken in the rear uh, in previous expeditions. And I decided, I wonder if it's because my weight and that weight. So not sure if that has anything to do, but I started moving stuff to the front and I just loved how it handles. I loved how it looks. Um, so yeah, I just, I just, now I just go with front paneers everywhere I go. We're, we're a little bit short on time, but Eric, I do want to talk a little bit about what food you uh, ate and brought with you because you are vegan, correct? Yes. I've been vegan for 30 years. Tell me a little bit about what, first of all, what you carried with you. And then when you stopped, you know, what, how you would seek out food that was appropriate for your diet. Yeah. So when I'm out there and expeditions, my, my job is just to, to finish and to get to the next town. Um, so sometimes I'm eating stuff that I would not eat at home, obviously, but like, uh, just to give an example, um, sometimes I stop at a convenience store and, and I look around and the only thing I see is peanut butter, maybe jelly and bread. And that, that's all I will have. Uh, but there's sometimes I go into a convenience store and I just get creative and that's the beauty of it too, uh, to getting creative. It's almost, it, um, becomes an art where, um, there was one time that I saw tortilla, then I saw, um, refried beans and I'm like, Oh, that's it. And a lot of refried beans have lard, but this one didn't, which it was great. And then I was like, Oh, I need something else, you know? And I got a barbecue potato chip and then I just broke them into pieces and made my own little taco. And it was so good because the sweetness from the barbecue and the salty from the beans, I was just, it was almost gourmet out there. I will not have it here at home, but, but out there, it just tasted so good. Um, so those are the things that I have to do just to move on to the next place. But I always have trail mixes or, um, yeah things like that, that, that will carry me on. Maybe some uh, dehydrated food. And I only use those um, in case of emergency. On this trip, I found, just prior to this trip, I found um, a macaroni and cheese, a vegan macaroni and cheese that was so easy to make in uh, the campsite. So, because the cheese was already made and all you had to do is boil the pasta and then just drop the, the vegan cheese on top. And it was so good. And I would stop and, and get some like at a convenience store or a supermarket. I would get tomatoes or, or green peppers or jalapenos or things like that that I could put on top and, and, and dress it up differently every day. So I don't just not eat in macaroni and cheese every day. But, but I could actually survive only in macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Who couldn't? I could. What did you use? What did you use to cook? Like, was it a, like a jet boil type stove? Yeah, by a packing stove. Yeah, and then for coffee, I uh, a lot of people know that I like coffee, and I actually used to own a coffee shop five years in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, so I love coffee. But again, I wanted to go really light, so I didn't know what kind of setup. At first, I was like, well, maybe I do a pour over, or maybe I do my mocha pot, or. But this time, I decided to go with. Um, with instant coffee, which I've been a fan of that. Yeah, no, no, seriously. Instant coffee has has changed 
um, in the next in the past eight years, and um, I found some really good ones. Right up until that, you said that I was ready to hop on my bike and do a nineteen hundred mile ride, and then you said the instant coffee. I said, "Nope, I'm out." <laughs> Eric, thanks, thanks for joining me today. And for those of you listening, uh, if you want to find out more about what Eric's up to, you can. The best thing you could do is probably follow him on Instagram at uh, bicycle underscore nomad, uh, and. You can see all of his gear set up as well, all the really incredible photos from his trip on the Buffalo Soldiers route. Uh, and Eric, is there anywhere else you want people to uh, follow you and, and find your information? No, I think that that's, uh, Instagram for now is great. Uh, what, one of the things that I decided to do is I have uh, documentation of every single day, what they went through from day one to day 41. So you could look at my Instagram and go... Uh, and see some of the pictures and, and photo, but uh, read the caption because the captions are the day by day play what went down in each of the place where they where they camp and they stayed. I actually camped and stayed as well. So all that is documented on my Instagram. Um, I just purchased uh, the domain Bicycle Core, and I will be uploading some of the information that I'm gathering right now. Some videos, some historical photos. Um, again, hopefully be able to uh, put all 20 guys with their names and the faces. So um, that, that, that's going to take some time. Um, but, but, but look, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that project. Bicycle underscore nomad on Instagram is a great place to start. And, and yeah, do read the captions because there's also some great quotes from, from the original Buffalo Soldiers mixed in there and fantastic photos. Um, and if you have questions for Eric, uh, I'm sure you can reach out on Instagram or you can, I can pester him for you. Just, uh, reach out to me at slow guy, fast ride on Twitter at slow guy on the fast ride on Instagram. Uh, if you have any questions, I'm happy to pass them along to Eric. And of course, uh, for those of you listening, please do check out the other episodes of the ruler magazine tech podcast. There are quite a few of them. Uh, some are tech nerdier than others, but they're all a lot of fun. Uh, Eric, thanks again for joining me today. It was a pleasure to talk as always. It was a pleasure talking to you, Dan. Thank you very much. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.